have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a, of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In two weeks, we'll be celebrating the birthday of the greatest person who has ever lived. A person to whom we have made the deepest commitment, some of us, the deepest commitment one could ever make to another. A person we have chosen to follow, and some of us, most of us, have received him as our Savior and Lord. But really it's not enough just to celebrate the birth of a baby, nor is it really enough just to receive him as Savior and Lord. That's just the beginning. For when Jesus comes to live in our life, God immediately gives us his name, beautiful name of Christian. And he tells us to go and follow him and learn how to live out that name. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther says that now now that you have received Christ, you are to become Christ to others. And here's how the progression works. We receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we begin to follow Him. And we get His attitude, His mind, His way of thinking. That's what Paul means when he says, have this attitude in yourselves, or as the King James has it, let this mind be in you. Start thinking like Jesus. And as you begin to develop his attitude and begin to think like him, his actions become second nature to you. Now I think there are some words this morning that characterize the attitude of Christ. One is servant. He became, said the Apostle Paul, a bond slave. The Gospel of Mark says that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for others. He didn't come as a superstar. He didn't come to lord it over anybody. He didn't come to be served by the servants. He came to serve the servants. And there was no rebellion in him at all. And he lived in absolute submission to his father. And everything he did, he did in obedience to his father. And he was not too proud to do whatever it, was, it took to glorify his father and to carry out the master plan, and to help others. And all of his life was lived like that. As a matter of fact, as he faced his death, on the night before his death, John pictures him washing his disciples' feet, serving them, love on its knees. Someone said that he belonged to the royal order of the towel. And even before he faced death, 
He lived out this servant mind, this servant attitude. Now, it's not easy to have that kind of attitude. In a competitive and combative world, nobody wants to serve. We, we'd rather be served. And to illustrate how, that, how true that is, J.B. Phillips has reversed the order of the Beatitudes and puts it like this. Happy are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Happy are the hard-boiled, for they never let life hurt them. Happy are, those, are they who complain, for they get their own way in the end. Happy are the blasé, for they never worry over their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the knowledgeable men of the world, for they know their way around. Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. In fact, it took two and a half years, Jesus taught his disciples that if you want greatness, that greatness was found in serving others. In fact, he said that the greater the sacrifice and the deeper the commitment to servanthood, the more beautiful the life. Hard for us to imagine. But you show me a business where the employer and the employees just do enough to get by, and I'll show you a failing business. You show me a business where the employer and the employees go the second mile serving other people, giving service, and I'll show you a thriving business. You show me a family where everybody works together and pitches in and serves one another, and I'll show you a functional home, and I'll show you a happy marriage. Jesus was a servant. Second, he was a possibility thinker. I think he saw the potential in every person. He saw the rock in Peter, this Simon the pebble. And he saw the good in everyone. He, he was able to look beyond the, the surface and be able to see the potential. He was this possibility thinker. And I suppose that most of the result that Jesus accomplished in life was because he saw the possibilities in everything and in every person. Which are you, an impossibility thinker or a possibility thinker? An impossibility thinker finds reasons why it won't work. His favorite word is can't. A possibility thinker is a person who sees a solution in every problem he exercises the God-given gift of faith and he believes that with God nothing is impossible. Do you know the only, the only miracle that Jesus performed that's found in all four Gospels? There is only one miracle found in all four of the Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And I think a part of why that miracle is in all of the Gospels is that God wants us to see the setting of possibility thinking, of a person who sees a solution in every problem because it exposes the contrast between the impossible thinker and the possible thinker. There was the impossibility thinker. His name was Philip. And so Jesus comes to him. The scripture says that he comes to test him, to see, let Philip see, you know, what, what he is. And he says to Philip, what are we going to do with all these hungry people? And Philip says, there's nothing we can do. 
We have no food. We have no money to buy any and no access to any. The impossibility thinker. But there was a possibility thinker nearby. His name was Andrew. And he heard a boy say that he had five loaves and two fishes. And so he comes to Jesus and says, I see some possibilities here. I see a boy with five loaves and two fishes. You know, it's, it seems confusing that some people can follow Jesus for a lifetime and never catch on the potential that's in him. And because he was a possibility thinker, he was positive. Don't you just hate the, uh, this uh, negative thinking? Now, I don't hate negative people, but I hate the negative thinking of negative people. I heard about a guy who had a barber who was always talking negatively. You, you know these kind of folks. Everything was bad and all was just terrible. And one day he went in to get a haircut. He said, I need a haircut because I'm leaving this week for my vacation. He said, well, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Italy. Oh, he said, you don't want to go there. He said, that's a nasty country. You, you know, you don't want to go. He said, no, I don't think so. I think it's going to be nice. He said, how are you going to go? He said, well, I'm flying American. Oh, you don't want to fly American. Man, that's the worst airline. Service is terrible. You don't want to fly American. Surely you're not going on American. Yeah, it'll be all right. Well, what are you going to do when you get there? I mean, what do you do in Italy? He said, well, we're going to do a little touring. And he said, by the way, he said, I have a personal audience with the Pope. Oh, no, come on, get real. Nobody has a personal audience with the Pope. Well, he said, yeah, I think so. I've got an appointment with him. Well, about 10 days later, he went back into the barber's shop, and the barber said, well, how was your vacation? Well, it's great. Oh, come on. Yeah, it's a wonderful time. Loved Italy. Man, what a place. My favorite place. Well, he said, I bet the American Airlines, I bet that was a terrible. No, he said, no, great flight, smooth, great connections. He said, well, I know one thing. You didn't get to see the Pope. I know you didn't get to see. Yeah, he said, I did. So I had a personal, private audience with him. He said, well, you did? Yeah, he said, well, what did you say, the barber? What, what did he say, the barber asked? The guy said, well, I went in and I knelt down. I kissed his, you kissed his ring, yeah. Well, what did the Pope say? He said, well, he put his hand on my head and said, son, where did you get that lousy haircut? <laughs> now, now, I, I, I've, I've always... <laughs> I've, I've always noticed that, that negative thinking always comes back, you know? And, and that, that positive thinking, possibility thinking breeds possibility thinking. And, and, and what I see in this man I've chosen to follow is a person who believes in me and what I am and what I can do. And because of that, I want to please him. He was a possibility thinker. Third, he was a person who had confidence but not conceit. Now when the scripture says that he emptied himself and became a man, I know that what he's talking about is that, that Jesus gave up the privileges of heaven for us. I know that's what that's talking about. And he's talking about this self-emptying of, 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 of deity so that God could come incarnate in Jesus. I know that's what that means. But I think it means more than that. 
I think the implication of that is this, that Jesus, when it says that Jesus did not covet, did not grasp or cling selfishly to the fact that he was God, I think that part of what that means is that Jesus knew who he was and he knew his position with the Father and he felt good about himself and he didn't need the trappings of man to feel good about himself. It didn't matter to him that folks despised shepherds and fishermen. He still hung out with them. And it didn't matter to him that folks looked down on publicans and prostitutes as riffraff. He still embraced them. And it didn't matter to him that folks looked on lepers as outcasts and stood afar off from them. He still touched them because he knew who he was and he didn't need the approval of others to feel good about himself. He said, I am the eternal one. I am Messiah. I am Christ. I'm the bread of heaven. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the Alpha and the Omega. He knew what he was, and he knew his position with God the Father, and he didn't need all the trappings that we have to have to feel good about ourselves. I have a question for you. Do you like yourself? Do you feel good about yourself? One of the greatest contradictions of Christianity as I see it or all these people who are so miserable about the way they look and are so in, feel so inferior about their life. Oh, you know what? You, you need to be grateful for the way God made you and thankful for the gifts by which, with which He has gifted you and understand that you are a special person created in His image, saved by the blood of His Son. You're somebody special. He felt good about himself. And there was this confidence without conceit. And to be like him is this person who comes to understand that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. And he lives out that verse every day of his life. There's a fourth word. It's the word you're anticipating. It's the word love. There was a special love about him a love that was willing to lay aside for others, a love that was unconditional and undeserved, grace upon grace. There was this kind of love that said, I not only you know, uh, love you, but I will live my life for you. It's a, 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 a giving agape kind of thing. This is the kind of love that the, the epistle of Philippians describes. A love that that gives. And the Apostle Paul invites us to come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and see that love pictured and live that love out. And if you want to be like Jesus, that's the kind of love you have. In fact, I know a pastor that every morning for the last 20 years of his life, every morning he's gotten up, got on his knees with an open Bible, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and he puts his hands on that verse, his fingers on that verse, and he prays, God, today let me live out these words. There are some things that love never does. 
Love is never envious, jealous, boastful, or proud, haughty, or selfish, or rude. Love does not demand its own way. It's not irritable or touchy. It does not hold grudges and will hardly notice when others do it wrong. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. And if you live out this love that's in Christ, you'll have loyalty to one you love. There'll be loyalty. You'll always believe in that one. You'll always expect the best of that one. And you'll always stand your ground in defending that one. That's what he was and how he lived. Unconditional, undeserved love. And so Campola tells about the time that he was riding, he was flying from Philadelphia out to the heartland of America, to Kansas City or Chicago or somewhere. And he said it was a pretty short flight, so they didn't serve a meal, but there's a lady had a little child, a little girl across the aisle from him, and she brought along a lot of uh, chocolate chip cookies. Favorite, my favorite, by the way, in case you are wondering. <laughs> and and so, so she was giving this little girl uh, these chocolate chip cookies, and the stewardess was coming by supplying the Coke. And she was drinking Cokes, and she was eating chocolate chip cookies. Now they were making their descent into Kansas City. Seat backs up in their upright position, tray tables locked and fastened, and everybody was buckled in. Even the steward eye were buckled in at the back. Now there's something wonderful and tasty about chocolate chip cookies and Cokes going down. <laughs> but coming back up, Something happens in the stomach of a little girl that makes chocolate chip cookies and Cokes not that desirable. And so as they began their descent, this little girl up chucked all over herself. Her little frilly dress. Ooh, Lord, mm, oh. And everybody was backing off, you know, smell terrible. And he said, you know, when the stewardess, when they finally landed, the mother was trying to get this stuff off, you know, got the picture, that'll fix your lunch up for today. And getting this stuff off. And, 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 and the stewardess just kind of, you know, went by and everybody's kind of backing away, you know, getting around. And everybody was headed out of there, baby, getting away. And he said, as he started up the concourse to get off the plane, he saw a, a man looking anxiously down the concourse, and he thought, I bet that's that little girl's dad. I think I'll hang around and see what happens. And when that little girl came up that concourse and out into the, into the uh, terminal, that daddy embraced her. Didn't even smell that stuff. He took her in his arms and he kissed her all over. And he said to the mother, if you'll run on and get gone and start getting the baggage, we'll be on there in a minute. We want to spend a little time together. When he told the story, I thought of the prodigal son coming back from the father, from the far country, with the smell of the swine still in his clothes, and his father ran and fell on his neck and loved him. Now listen to me carefully. If you're going to be like Jesus... You're going to have to get past the smell and the ugly 
If you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to have to get past the scars and the wounds and the evidence that repels you. He loved. Five, he was a forgiver slash giver. Now there are some givers and some takers. There are some forgivers and unforgivers. I tell you, you cannot be like Jesus and hold a grudge. Look at him hanging on that cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You cannot walk like him and be him to the world and have unforgiving, an unforgiving spirit. It'll eat away like a cancer and it'll diminish your witness and denigrate your testimony. You cannot represent him and not forgive. He was forgiving. And so Judah Ben-Hur came back to Israel for one reason, revenge. Because of one man, he lost the sweet years of his youth, spent them in the galley of a slave ship. Because of one man, Messala, his, his sister and mother rotted in a cave outside Jerusalem like lepers. And so he came back to, Israel, to Jerusalem, to Israel, for one reason, for one purpose, revenge. He was obsessed with it. So much that one day his sweetheart, Rachel, looked into his tortured eyes and said, Judah ben her, you have become Messiah. For you become the bond slave of the person you can't forgive. You become the bond slave of the person against whom you hold that grudge. And you cannot be his representative if you can't forgive. One last word. Persistence. Now what I read in the book of Philippians is a man wanting to be like Jesus. Oh, to be like him to know him in the fellowship of his suffering and, in the, and, the, and, and be conformed to the image of his dying, he prayed. It's the story of a man who set his sights on the goal of the high calling of Christ Jesus. And he knew that that wasn't a short dash. It required persistence. Now, how did Jesus do what he did? How did he get where he got? How did he become what he was? How, he, he, persistence. He wouldn't quit. He didn't give up on men who taxed his patience, to say the least. And he never turned back. The scripture says that he set his face toward Jerusalem and he never wavered. And when he got into Gethsemane's garden and he faced what that meant, he prayed for its removal, but he didn't turn away from it. He didn't turn back. He didn't quit. Oh, how it hurts. The, the falling away of believers. People who start but never finish. People who make commitments they never follow. 
Oh, how it breaks my heart. The attrition of God's people. He would not quit. Something like William Carey's one day William Carey was a little kid he climbed up in a tree he was after a bird nest like every kid does and he fell out of the tree and broke his leg about a week later his mother looked out the window and he was climbing back up in the tree after that same bird nest uh, cast and haul and his mother scolded him and she said, oh, but he said oh mother what I begin I have to finish and God took the seeds of that boy's persistence and planted them in India for William Carey became the father of the modern missionary movement and he went to India and he labored seven years before he ever saw a convert and in the year 1800 he saw his first convert and he died before he saw the millions thereafter but he wouldn't quit A person who is like Jesus Christ is a person who understands that the, that the calling and the gifts that God has given him are worth dying for. How many of you have seen the musical? Now, if you have seen it, you go like this. If you haven't seen it, you go like this. How many of you have seen the musical, The Man of La Mancha? Oh, okay. It's the, is it Man of La Mancha? Yeah. I thought maybe I got the wrong title. Nobody's ever heard of it. <laughs> it's, it's this musical that was written after uh, the, the story of Don Quixote, the guy that, that laid aside the burden of sanity and started out to change the world. Don Quixote, you know, the guy that got the sword and fighting windmills and all those kind of stuff. You remember that one, don't you? Don Quixote? Who? The Man of La Mancha has this, is this story about Don Quixote who decides that he's going to, he's going to save the world. And so he, he starts out and he, he meets a lewd woman, a woman of the streets. He wants to help her. And so he does by not calling her what she is. He calls her lady or ma'am. And she's suspicious and she wonders what he's about. And finally one day she says, what, you know, what are you up to, Quixote? And he said, well, I'm just trying to spread a measure of grace in our world. And she said, the world is a dung heap and we're maggots that crawl on it. And he said, oh, my lady doesn't really believe that in her heart. And she said, what's in my heart would send me halfway to hell, and you, Quixote, are going to take a beating. And he says, whether I win or lose doesn't matter. It's the quest. And she spits vulgarly and says, quest, that's for your quest. And she turns to walk away and pauses. And then she looks back and says, Quest? What is Quest? And he breaks out in probably one of the greatest songs ever written. Don't worry. <laughs> he, he breaks out in this song to dream the impossible dream 
to fight the unbeatable foe, to bear the unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go, to right the unrightable wrong, to love pure and chaste from afar, to try when your arms are too weary to reach the unreachable star. This is my quest, to follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far, to fight for the right without question or pause, to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. And I know that if I'm faithful and true to this glorious quest, that my heart will lie peaceful and calm when I'm laid to my rest. And the world would be better for this had one man scorned and covered with scars to his last ounce of courage strove to reach the unreachable stars. And he came and he gave his last drop of blood for that dream. And he never gave up. Let's pray. Our Father, now that we know and are reminded of what Jesus is and like. Let us be satisfied with nothing less. For I pray in his name and for his sake. There are three invitations this morning. There's an invitation for you to come and begin to follow Christ. I believe that becoming a Christian is coming to a point in time where we decide to give our heart and life to Jesus Christ and begin to follow Him. Perhaps you need to come today for the first time, make your first time decision to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Or maybe you need to come this morning and join this fellowship of believers or to recommit yourself to Christ while we stand to sing, we invite you to come.